Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Dead Pundit Society. My name is Adam Proctor. Thanks for joining us. Got a really fantastic interview with Alex Nichols of Current Affairs Magazine coming right at you where we talk about the bizarre appearance of neo-Confederate kitsch in New England of all places. Stay tuned. Many of you will undoubtedly be aware that a couple of weeks ago, a young couple in the state of Georgia were sentenced to years in prison for their part in a racially charged crime at a black child's birthday party. Kayla Norton and Jose Torres were part of a large group in July of 2015 called Respect the Flag. That was, of course, the Confederate flag. Uh, They had a convoy of trucks flying the Confederate flag, and it pulled up to a birthday party for an eight-year-old black child in which they threatened the family and they yelled racial slurs. And at one point, Torres pulled out a shotgun and pointed it at the family. Clearly, the Civil War was over 150 years ago, but we're still living with the consequences. Um, and the, 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 these consequences seem to revolve time and time again around a piece of cloth. On today's episode, uh, we talk about this piece of cloth and how it has spread in a paradoxical way uh, to New England, of all places. And lest we be misunderstood, um, another thing that this show takes very seriously is uh, we're just not down for this sort of like southern poor bashing that goes on in respectable liberal circles these days. Um, That's just a thinly veiled form of class hatred. Um, And we don't play that game here at the Dead Pundit Society. So we will be poking fun at uh, so-called Southern culture. But keep in mind that this is a fake pastiche of neo-Confederate kitsch. It does not represent the legitimate working class culture that was often multiracial in terms of its labor organizing in the U.S. South and rural America. Stay tuned. music gets a bad rep you know why is it that when bruce springsteen sings about a fucking turnpike it is art and then when someone sings about a horse it's dumb inherently i don't think i think some of the greatest songwriters of all time are country artists dolly parton willie nelson you know and if you're writing honestly that is art and i would never bash that um the problem is with a lot of modern country music what what is called stadium country music the sort of keith urban brand of country music is that it is not honest. It is the exact opposite of honest. Where instead of people actually telling their stories, you got a bunch of millionaire metrosexuals who've never done a hard day's work in their lives, but they figured out the words and the phrases they can use to pander to their audience, and they list the same words and phrases off sort of mad lib style in every song, raking in millions of dollars from actual working class people. You know the words, you know the phrases, phrases like... A dirt road, a cold beer, a blue jeans, a red pickup, a rural noun, simple adjective. No shoes, no shirt, no shoes, you didn't hear that. Sort of a mental typo. I walk and talk like a field hand But the boots I'm wearing cost three grand I write songs about riding tractors From the comfort of a private jet I could sing in Mandarin You'd still know I'm pandering Hunting deer, chasing trout A Bud Light with the logo facing out Hear that subtle mandolin That's textbook pandering I own a private branch that I rarely use 
I don't like dirt. One verse, one chorus in the bag. Now it's time to talk to the ladies. I'm hoping my southern charm offsets all these rapey vibes I'm putting out. Good girl in a straw. All right, welcome back, everybody. Joining me today via the interwebs is Mr. Alex Nichols. Alex is the social media editor for Current Affairs magazine, which can be found online at www.currentaffairs.org. Um, you know, let me just give it to you straight. If you're not reading Current Affairs, um, who are you? What kind of person are you? It's, it's, it's an essential read. Um, the guys uh, who work there are doing really fantastic work, and you should be reading it. Alex is here to talk about his article. It came out a few weeks back called The Peculiarities of the Yankee Confederate, where he discusses uh, the paradoxical appearance of Dixieland Kitsch in small town New England, of all places. Alex, welcome to the Dead Pundit Society. How the hell are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm holding up, man. Um, you might you might hear a little Dixie twang coming out of my voice uh, since we're talking about fishing and spitting and hunting and all that. Uh, my, my Virginia roots are going to be showing. I hope that's okay. You don't judge too harshly. Uh, I won't judge. So tell me a little bit about your the impulse to write this article. Uh, growing up in a place like Virginia, I just assumed that y'all damn Yankees, uh, you know, <laughs> don't have anything to say about the South. Don't listen to country music. Don't chew tobacco. And uh, certainly don't adopt the same kind of neo-Confederate kitsch uh, that, that we have here down in the South. So what was it that led you to, uh, to write this article? Well, it's something that's bothered me for a while. Like, it's not a huge issue, but it's something that, like, I don't think a lot of people have really tried to explain, like, the sociological uh, origins of it. When I was growing up, especially in the last, I don't know, like, 10, 15 years or so, it seemed like a lot of like working class or lower class middle um lower middle class white culture has sort of coalesced into like a sort of like white trash adjacent paradigm like where the people I grew up with who were like uh you know when we were in like fourth grade or whatever and everyone was like going to go to college everyone was really into sports people listened to like Nelly or whatever <laughs> like every everyone listened to Jesus rap God. in like 2005 and now it's it like was getting hot yeah. hot in her and all that the dirty south it was right? yeah but now like all of those people listen to country music they all wear camo stuff they all own trucks and it's weird how just these sort of arbitrary like social signifiers have become so like almost universal among like rural whites like across the country i guess that's really interesting um i i you know i i recently uh moved back to the united states i lived in toronto to do a graduate degree in uh, in toronto and i was shocked when i showed up and i found people jamming out to this like douchebag stadium country music you know, and I'm I'm flabbergasted. I thought, you know, I was going to this enlightened place where nobody listens to this shit. Um, and little did I know, like, this American fake bullshit southern kitsch had sort of invaded the great north. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot to, there's like an article to be written just about country music and how the way it's sort of um, co-opted, like, like straight, like mainstream, what mainstream rock used to be. Like Nickelback type stuff, like in the last yes. ten years, that sort of just got three doors down. Yeah, that just got folded right into uh, country rock, and it just like grabbed the aesthetics of country music, and like that's white people just can't get enough of it now. That's delicious. It gives them a, a ready-made identity to latch onto. Prior to speaking to you in this episode, I talked a little bit about um, the couple down south who was just uh, sentenced uh, to like six and thirteen years, I think, for storming a child's birthday party in in pickup trucks with Confederate flags in tow, shouting uh, racial epithets and things like that. Um, so there's still like an open form of racism that goes on, uh, but those people are put behind bars, right? So there's a certain sense in which like. Our state no longer tolerates like open, brazen, hate crime style racism. And yet the so-called Confederate flag still represents the legacy of Southern racism. So your article begins by you note that in my rural Massachusetts hometown, uh, it became expectedly embroiled in a controversy after a police officer mounted a Confederate flag at his home in plain view of a 10-year-old African-American boy who lived across the street. Let's start there, and you can finish the rest of the story for us. 
Yeah, there was a big um, big hullabaloo around here a couple years ago or last year where, um, yeah, it was a, a police sergeant had a big Confederate flag up in his garage and this, this kid across the street was like all freaked out about it because, you know, on the news every day back then was a story about a young black kid getting gunned down by police officers. Yeah, his family voiced their concern to the like town council and everything and it was in the local news and there was also a lot of backlash to it like a lot of people like you know i saw like facebook threads where people are like oh everyone's too offended by things these days i don't understand why people are offended by this flag it's just a flag of course all the whole snowflake you know, yeah snowflake kind of uh, yeah of course there's a hundred hundred percent white people saying that right right so there was an, so uh, in other words, uh, there, there was a it was a multi sided debate. Then some people uh, were sort of denouncing, "How could you do this? You're in the north, you know this tr- this flag represents the traitorous South, traitorous slave holding South." And then other people came other people came to the rescue of this police officer. Uh, what kind of arguments were they making in his defense? Well, just that it's that it's it's just a flag. It just represents like rebellion like the guy said himself uh the quote was he said it has no negative connotations to me so it's just lost like all historical context to people they just it's just a sign of like the rebellion um it's a sign of you know the dukes of hazard you know running their car off of ramps and stuff and just like you know drinking and partying and making hooting noises like it's just lost all historical context that it once had even like 20 30 years ago that's interesting. I think one thing that your article really touches on is the importance of culture and politics. And I think like I think we on the left who who spend all our pathetic days, you know, uh, reading politics and thinking it through with our friends. Uh, we mistake the idea that like politics is like an immediate presence in everybody's life. Right. Like politics is just this immediate force. Whereas in for the normies in the world, it's really kind of like culture mediates politics for them. Right. And it's not always ever really clear that it's actually politics that they're engaging in. They just think they're sort of engaging in cultural activities. And so it's not surprising in a sense that this officer would think like, oh, it's just a flag. Right. This is my heritage. This is this is kind of how I grew up. But what kind of identity did that replace in the north? Because I think that seems to be what you're getting at in this article, that there is some kind of like socio-political economic transformation that has left uh, this identity as the only kind of thing for for the white working class to take up. Well, I'm actually I'm not sure. I don't think there was a like one um, single combined identity in the North, at least for white people. Just because the amount of diversity that was here, there are just so many immigrant groups and like so much interaction between you know like Irish immigrants and and like English settlers and like. Italians and just all these different groups that there there couldn't really be one combined identity as northern whites but like there was definitely um it was more like sincere I guess I would say before this sort of like ready-made mass marketed ideology that you have to adopt as a rural person it was more that you like you had an identity based on what you did for a job, who you knew in your hometown. It wasn't like something that was beamed to you over the radio waves or over like, you know, reality TV shows like Duck Dynasty or whatever. It was something more like grassroots and like something more like native. Yeah, in that sense, it makes way more sense uh, for people from Jersey to like rock out to Bruce Springsteen than it does like this douchebag stadium country, right? Yeah. (laughs) In the sense you just explained. Yeah, like it's sort of an artificial like facade put on put on top of like the culture. Like it's not like a it's not an authentic grassroots culture. Even though that's what it purports to be. It's supposed to be like, you know, the down home, average Joe uh culture, but it's like it's actually something that comes from T V basically. Right. So let's go back. Your your article does a really good job of breaking down exactly when you see like the reappearance of these southern kitschy symbols in the United States context. And of course, that started in the South. So maybe tell us a little bit about how these symbols reemerged and, and what the political stakes were at the time. Yeah, the Confederate bat- the Confederate battle flag, what we consider the Confederate flag was like used a little bit in the war. It wasn't really 
uh, it wasn't really a mass symbol until uh, the era of segregation, until the Dixiecrats and Strom Thurmond came about, and before like it was. 1948 was kind of the beginning when it was uh, there was this huge popular backlash to the army being integrated by Harry Truman and just the long road to uh, you know the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That's when these sort of um, cultural symbols came about again because before that they were just the realm of like uh, historical societies and reenactments and stuff like that. But then the, that's when the Confederate flag became like something that was being mass produced and something that people were like holding up at rallies. It it became like, became the rallying cry of uh, the segregationists basically. I think it's easy for folks to forget. And and you raised this in your, in your piece that in the 1968 presidential election, George Wallace ran as an independent and he won 13.5% of the popular vote in George Wallace being the, the sort of open segregationist candidate following the Brown Brown v. Board of Education uh, ruling in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and those types of things. So that was kind of that movement in its death throes. But that's also the point in which like you see the Confederate flag taking on a new kind of life, precisely at the moment where segregation is breaking down as an institutional system. What kind of parallels do you think there are between the appearance of that identity and the sort of beginnings of like what we now call neoliberalism? Because it seems like you're pointing in that direction. Yeah, it, it's definitely related to that in the way that um, like mass culture became like the dominant form of culture in American society. Like after, yeah, especially after the 60s, after radio, after TV, after uh you know, mass advertising was a, a dominant force in American life. It became like harder and harder to have like an authentic, like small town identity and like the idea of like a regional identity, like hyper regional identities that were just created by like word of mouth and just real life interaction sort of broke down and it became something that was more handed on down from television and from advertising executives. And it just be, became sort of homogenized across the country. That's interesting. So it seems like this was a ready-made identity for whites to sort of take up, um, you know, slowly but surely. But it didn't happen right away, right? Like, it didn't happen right away. It took several decades for this identity to sort of filter up uh, to the north. What do you think caused that lag? Can we explain that purely in, like, cultural culturalist terms? Um, are we looking at, like, deindustrialization? What do you think it might be? I think deindustrialization has a lot to do with it and just the fact that like after the factories all shut down, they were looking for something other than factories, which was, you know, sort of like a like a malformed version of like the back to the land movement where everyone after industrialization ended, everyone wanted to be a farmer again, Mm -hmm. I guess is what I would say, even though like no one is actually a farmer like the the actual proportion of farmers in uh even like agricultural counties it's only like a few guys who own the whole thing basically but like that's sort of the identity they picked to replace it right like How a much- sort of like almost primitivist type of uh identity right 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 the sort of like american republican rural uh agricultural ideal right yeah, like the yeah, uh, the, like the yeoman farmer. The yeoman farmer, right? Yeah. yeah, it has a lot of roots in American history. So it seems that this development of the neo Confederate, the the New England neo Confederate, is is also running parallel with the appearance of the alt right and the shit posters and and the, the the Milo fans and and all of the variants of the alt right. Do you see any parallels there in terms of like having a ready-made identity to grasp onto in, in, in the the lack of any other? Definitely. Yeah. And they're both, um, they're both like consciously or not very formed around just making liberals angry, just having these super, uh, sort of superficial, like, uh, offensive imagery and just, you know, triggering people as they say, like in, in, in a lot of it doesn't really make sense. It's not like internally consistent. The only defining factor, the only thing that brings it all together, is that it makes liberals angry. And it seems like it pr- produces kind of like a, a ready-made 
political fodder for like these far right movements, right? Like Trump, these people found paradoxical representative slash daddy in Trump, right? It seems to me there have to be parallels there, right? Like Trump purports himself to have this certain kind of identity that's totally divorced from his from his lived reality, and that's exactly what the neo confederates uh, up north are doing, right? There seems it seems like identity has been divorced from reality in a in a, in a really like kind of bizarre way. Does that sound about right? Yeah, there's very little. Uh, Trump's identity is like not that related to him being a billionaire. Somehow, at least his identity as a supporter see it because he's a he's a New York real estate guy. He's he's been a, a billionaire his whole life. He's married to immigrants. You know, it, it would seem like on the surface that he shouldn't be so appealing to these people. But the side that they emphasize and the side that they like is that he's so devoid of class. That he eats well-done steak with ketchup on it, that he watches TV all day, that he gets McDonald's Happy Meals even though he can afford uh, can afford to have his food catered. Like that, that's what they see. And the fact that he's brash and the fact that he's just a very stupid man who doesn't read books, that's what they see. The, the fact that he's a billionaire just becomes forgotten. It's just the fact that he's like – it's almost like a one-man cultural uh, backlash to like – intellectualism i guess right and oddly enough this turn to identity is kind of operates in a thinly veiled kind of like way of like class resentment right because when we talk about the liberals when we talk about the coastal elites when we talk about you know you dang yankee college educated so-and-sos you're talking about a class that's higher than yours in a sense you're talking about people who eat caviar and drink wine. Um, and so it seems like the dissemination of this identity, this neo-Confederate identity, enables one of a lower class to feel proud of oneself, despite the fact that, you know, they just they don't have it made in quite the same way. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah, it's definitely tied into that. There's definitely um, like a, a backlash against the elites. And usually they don't know really who the elites are who they're actually talking about because chances are they haven't really encountered the type of elites that they're talking about, like, you know, Josh Barrow or whoever, like these, um, these hypothetical coastal elites who attended Ivy league schools. Like they're not really encountering those people in small towns a lot. It's sort of something that they've just, uh, they're getting mad about because they've heard about it secondhand, I guess. And the whole backlash, it's yeah, it's a backlash to something that they're not really conscious of. It seems to me another thing that your article brings up is, is as I mentioned before, the way this sort of like interplay between culture and politics. And it's important to note, like it doesn't stop there, right? Like politics is mediated by culture, but then culture has to be then related back to politics. And it seems like what the creation of this identity enables is a certain kind of austerian mentality, right? And others have written about this. I'm not just pulling this out of my ass, but but this sort of like simple uh, rural southern identity like enables one to live a very austere existence in a world where the the 99% are getting less and less. So that seems pretty convenient, convenient wouldn't you say? Yeah, and in some sense it is connected to that. It's a, it's a way to rationalize being poor, it's a way to rationalize, you know, working all week, be- breaking your back, and then just getting drunk the second you get off work as something that's like morally, it's infused with a sort of moral, uh, like morality, that there's, some, there's something morally better about working this austere, working class, meager existence and jobs that are soon to be eliminated. There's something that makes that uh, morally pure compared to being a, a coastal elite or whatever. And it's, yeah, it's like a, it's like a, um, a post hoc way of rationalizing the uh, economic stratification. A lot of folks on the left and certainly progressive liberals and those types of folks sort of see the white work, working class as, as, as this irretrievably racist, awful kind of uh, segment of society. And I think you, know, you and I both sort of would agree that this is a very thinly veiled class hatred, <laughs> lower class hatred. Uh, that is right that you see when the coastal elite liberals talk in this way. 
But given the fact that this culture is so ingrained, like how do you see us getting out of this? Because your article kind of teases that a little bit. Maybe you might elaborate about how we begin to organize against the policies that created alienation of these folks in the first place. Yeah, I think I think having a substantial like working class politics, one that's not based on race resentment or cultural resentment, um, is going to be an important tool in getting these people conscious of their class position in a way that's not just rationalizing it through all these symbols. Getting people back into unions, getting people to organize across racial lines, that was important in getting people to like back when the unions would have black and white people in them, just working alongside people of other races, working in these mass working class movements as a way to get people to move beyond these like narrow cultural racial ways of thinking into more of a universal working class liberation line of thought. Do you see a potential here for a certain kind of like rural white populism emerging from this kind of discourse in terms of like, do you think that it could be flipped on its head, right? In the way that it, that, that populism has, was uh, in the 1930s and other periods throughout history. I think like the economic circumstances that we're in now make it a lot harder to have any sort of like real policy framework because in the in the 30s like the the populism of Huey Long and the and um the southern populists it had they had there were direct policy everyone was a farmer basically and there were direct policies that could help them like simple policies about banking and the credit system but now there isn't like in the north there really isn't that sort of like um one unifying industry there aren't these simple solutions so of course what you're going to get is things like trump where he talks about how we're going to bring all the jobs back we're going to bring the industrial jobs back and it's not going to happen because like it's just like everything's so diversified economically and a lot of the people that have that are part of this sort of like decentralized populist like uh uprising i guess it's just so diversified the industries they're in a lot of these people are maybe some of them work in agriculture but a lot of them are still working in manufacturing a lot of people are just like they're just like skilled laborers they're like plumbers and electricians and you know hvac guys and like there, there isn't really one economic program that could be sort of a rural white populist platform there could easily be a universal platform and just you know expanding protections for workers in a, a genuine working class politics. But I don't think there can be like a specifically rural white populism at this point in time, at least in the North, because there just isn't a policy that would actually help rural whites like specifically and exclude the That's rest a good of point people. Because you look at recent history and some of like the avatars of these types of people, you'd think of like a Joe, the plumber type of guy. Right, I think he was from Ohio, if I'm not mistaken, which is more southern than, say, North uh, New England, rather. But, but I mean that that's very much in the north in terms of the way we we sort of conceptualize this thing. But Joe the plumber, so it came out, was actually like you know, was firmly implanted in the petty bourgeoisie. Right, this man owned a small business and and and, and pulled in you know six figures. Or you think about a guy like Ken Bone. Remember that uh, dweeb who showed up at the the Trump rally or whatever, the man with the mustache, that guy? Oh, yeah. You know, what does a Ken Bone have have in common with a guy who works in a call center because his factory job was, out, you know, outsourced? Um, it's, not a, it's not abundantly clear, but, the, yeah. but they're purported to share the same kind of culture. Yeah, that's an interesting point with the, the plumbers because that seems to be sort of at the center of, like, why you come up with these weird politics and these weird identities is people like that who like plumbers make pretty decent money people in these skilled trades but they're also definitely like working class like even guys that own a small business in that vein guys who own you know a roofing business or whatever they're they're coded as working class even though they're not which means that they get to have a working class identity, sort of. They get to be like the common man, just the average guy, even if they're making, you know, $80,000 a year and live in a McMansion. Their class situation prevents them from being in, in, um, embedded in any sort of 
genuine working class movement. Like they're not going to be in a union. They're not going to be on the ground with with uh, other workers. But they're still, you know, coded working class, which pr- which like leads them to to these weird identities that don't really go anywhere. That's a good point. And those types of folks too, like who who are small business owners, are going to be in many cases like opposed to universal social programs because. In many cases, their taxes will go up. You know, they'll jump a tax bracket, or they'll have to pay more taxes for their employees, or whatever else. Like we saw with Obamacare, and we saw the sort of mass uprising against that from the, the small business owners. Yeah, small business it, it it makes it hard to really organize people when you have these small units of people. Even if there's you know one guy, like a lot of a lot of small businesses, even though we sort of uh, herald them as like the. Um, being ethical capitalists, a lot of them are exploiting their workers pretty badly. But it's hard it's hard for the workers to really like you it's hard to make a union when you have three employees. Exactly. So it's kind of like yeah, it's it's tough to have a, a real working class consciousness in those situations. So those sort of breed a little bit of a reactionary streak. Is it safe to conclude from all of this? That since you're trying to offer up sort of like structural causes for the this neo confederatization of New England, is it fair to conclude, in some respects at least, that the North is being southernized? Right. What I mean by that is like following, uh, you know, the Civil War, there were were uh, concerted efforts to keep out unions, to, to, to keep the, the, the livelihoods of folks kind of like more atomized and, and keep personal responsibility primary on the table rather than sort of universal solidaristic actions. So that's been a condition in many parts of the South with some notable exclusions, but many parts of the South since after the Civil War. And so we could argue that the North in some senses is being Southernized. And so... Insofar as we see Southern culture under scare quotes, right? Southern bullshit kitsch culture showing up in the North, it seems to make sense. I mean, is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think it's it's definitely the culture. Like after with industrialization, that's when the North had the most power, the most cultural power. When they were able to like during Reconstruction, when they sort of wanted to remake the South in their own image. But now that that economic force, that economic power doesn't really exist now that the whole country has basically just been forced into minimum wage service jobs. So there's sort of a vacuum. The North doesn't really have that cultural economic power that it once did. So you see sort of uh, these sort of other cultural frameworks being foisted upon it by the South and by the West, I guess. It's sort of like as the North has lost its dominance. As you mentioned in the South, uh, the sort of like racial hierarchy and the sort of identity of the yeoman farmer played into the projects, the hegemonic projects of the kind of like local and regional elites at that time, right? And so it was a way of sort of buying off poor Southern whites uh, so that they would, you know, consent in some way to the hegemonic project, uh, economic and political that was going on in in the South. So with that being said, like, can we say the same thing of what's happening in New England around this neo-Confederate movement? What kind of hegemonic political and economic project is it enabling? I don't know if it really is enabling anything. That's the thing. Like obviously in the South, it was um, the there was a pretty stark contradiction between you know the poor whites who in a lot of cases were not really into the whole Confederate succession thing. It was a very planter-oriented thing. It was like the you know the people at the top of society wanted this, and the people in the back country, were, who were usually the ones that got sent to the front lines, were not really that right, enthusiastic right. about it. So it's it's weird that it has a sort that it it has this sort of like a common man connotation when those people like West Virginia split off from Virginia because that was the back country. There weren't a lot of plantations there, and they just. They didn't want to fight because they didn't see that it as being part of their. It seems it seems to identity. me that these motherfuckers I, uh, need to need to watch the Free State of Jones, uh, and if they if they would, they would see <laughs> that the valorization of the Confederate yeah. Army as like the Army of the Common Man is a is a total sham, um, and it was a class autarky ruling class autarky in the South at the time of the Confederate uh, uh, you know rebellion. 
Yeah, it was was definitely a very uh, stratified society, and it didn't really value the small white farmer at all. It it valued uh, monoculture of cash crops, not, you know, small farms growing food to feed your family, even though it's sort of like it's sort of morphed to be that kind of thing, that sort of backwoods farmer. But that's that's not really what the flag was uh, was all about. That's not what they were fighting for. Is there any correlation with the rise of the neo-Confederate identity in the North with the Tea Party movement? Does that seem to hold up? Yeah, definitely. And like it, it has it has that in common with the Tea Party that they're both um, people putting a sort of like scatterbrained platform that doesn't really make sense, trying to root that in American history, either through like the um, either through the Minutemen and the, uh, you know, the American colonists against the British, which in some ways it does make sense because they were primarily mad about taxes, but there's definitely a lot in common between uh, trying to root it in the Confederacy too. Just these sort of like this grouping of of weird grievances about Obama and about liberals and healthcare and everything else, trying to trying to root it historically when it really doesn't bear much relation to the past. Now, I didn't grow up in uh, New England, as I mentioned, and so I'm, I'm, I have to plead ignorance uh, in some respects, but I can just imagine some of my friends who did just screaming into their earbuds or wherever they're listening to this podcast, you know, saying, no, you idiot, like, you know, this is, there have always been backwards, like, people in, in, the, in New England, they just would have had different kinds of identities. And I think there's some truth to that, right? Like, if you go to Maine, or some parts of like New Hampshire or something like that. Like there are a lot of people who live in very rural areas and they have a kind of like, don't tread on me attitude, right? That seems to map on uh, to the neo-Confederate ideal. Um, so maybe could you talk a little bit about what existed in that framework, uh, that identity framework prior to this? Oh, definitely. Yeah. There have been a lot of, um, there's always a current of like a reactionary ideas. Like I, I don't want to get, I don't want to like insult New England because I think this is like a relatively small pro, uh, problem, like this the the neo Confederate thing as a whole. But there is definitely, especially in New Hampshire, you mentioned New Hampshire where they have a very "don't tread on me" ideology, even without the Confederate flag. That you do see more of them up there, more of a sort of like. Uh, individualistic, liberty-minded, um, anti-government ideology where up, you go up there, you don't have to buy car insurance mm. like you do in Massachusetts. Um, so someone hits your car and they basically have to declare bankruptcy. They don't have, you know, seatbelt laws and helmet laws. So there, yeah, there, there is sort of, um, an ingrained anti-establishment, anti, um, anti-government thing. Sounds like a sounds like a, liber, a libertarian hellscape in some ways, right? Like there's this, uh, they they attempted a utopia and ended, ended up with a hellscape in some senses. What role does classical libertarianism uh, play play in that? I think yeah, I think there's there's definitely a lot of libertarianism there. I think a lot of a lot of libertarians moved to New Hampshire. There was like the Free State Project where they were going to send all the libertarians to New Hampshire and just try to overhaul it as like a free market. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, turn it into Galt's Gulch or whatever. But it, it's basically just like it's kind of shitty up there. Like you cross the border from Massachusetts, and it's like the roads are kind of shittier because they don't have uh, they don't have sales tax. They don't have they don't have taxes to pay for things. It's just kind of like you know, and you immediately start seeing more Trump signs than you see in Massachusetts once you once you cross the border. It seems like every now and then uh, one of these uh, libertarian uh, utopian projects sort of uh, crops up somewhere and it and it fails spectacularly, you know, uh, which never seems to thwart anybody in their ideology, but it's it's uh, somewhat pleasing to see it from our perspective. Yeah, you always see that. You see it with a little little bit with Vermont too, but on the other end, where occasionally you see like a Vermont secession movement pop up and you see um, they tried to pass a uh, universal health care statewide bill. And I think it got like it got voted by the House and like the Senate. It forgot about it or something. But, yeah, they, it's like sort of mirrored New Hampshire where they try to create their own like state utopia. But it's more of like a social democratic uh, social democratic framework. 
Speaking of Vermont and social democracy, it seems like uh, one one thing that Bernie Sanders has sort of discovered as the sort of like uh, maestro of contradictions that he has been in his campaign, he's discovered that despite identity, there are a set of social programs that just have almost um, you know unanimous consent uh, behind you know social security, uh, Medicare. Uh, those types of things. Do you think that that that's kind of the direction uh, that 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 the left uh, needs to go in in terms of trying to capture these folks, and uh, maybe talk a little bit about the current direction, uh, the class-free identity politics direction of the of the Democratic elite in terms of completely, totally fucking missing the point. I think a solution to a lot of that, as always, is universal programs like Social Security and Medicare, because those don't trigger the sort of uh, class resentment and stratification that you get with things like, you know, food stamps and WIC and, and programs that are specifically geared towards helping poor people. Like you don't get you don't get that resentment. You don't it's if it applies to everyone, you don't have people thinking that it only um, the benefits are only going to one group of people, whether it's above them or below them, class-wise. What's happening electorally in New England? Uh, get 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 me and others up to speed. Uh, ha- have you seen? I know the Democratic Party has lost over nine hundred seats uh, nationwide. I presume uh, many of those have been in. in your Not really. It's it's, it's still a Democratic stronghold. Uh, Massachusetts has a um, Republican governor, uh, Charlie Baker, who's like. Sort of a moderate, I guess. Right. I mean, probably 20 years ago, he would have been considered far right, but in the current uh, current climate, he's uh, he's considered a moderate. And there was when um, before Elizabeth Warren, when Scott Brown won Ted Kennedy's old Senate seat, that was uh, 2010. Right. That was around the you know the whole dust up around Obamacare. Mm-hmm. So things like that occasionally do happen. But on a, on a state level, it's definitely – it's still very solidly democratic. We interrupt this message to bring you some sophisticated New England class analysis. Brought to you by Goodwill Hunting. And hey, my boy's wicked smart. See, the sad thing about a guy like you is in 50 years, you're going to start doing some thinking on your own. And you're going to come up with the fact that there are two certainties in life. One, don't do that. And two, you dropped 150 grand on a fucking education you could have got for a dollar fifty in late charges at the public library. <laughs> yeah, but I will have a degree, and you'll be serving my kids fries at a drive-through on our way to a skiing trip. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, but at least I won't be unoriginal. But I mean, if you have a problem like that, I mean, we could just step outside. We could figure it out. No, man, there's no problem. It's cool. It's cool. Cool. Damn right, it's cool. Are you like me not? <laughs> My boy's wicked smart. We've, we've pretty much covered the article. I think uh, maybe the last place to end, and we try to end on a positive note, but this is some really uh, dire shit because you write the drinking class man knows life is pretty rotten, that you work and drink until you die. But strongly encouraged by the millionaire tribunes of the working poor, like the guy from Dirty Jobs, the guys from Duck Dynasty, and the guys from Larry the Cable Guy, he adopts flimsy, prejudiced rationalizations to explain his very feelings of being forgotten and exploited. So at the, at the heart of this is a, is a fundamental alienation and exploitation. And you've pointed to uh, the necessity of you know universal social programs uh, to cure this. But how the fuck do we get out of this? What, what, what do we do? What is to be done? Lay it on us. Well, I think, I think specifically what you're talking about, we have to get, ri- we have to get out of the, the idea that just working hard, just busting your ass and uh, going, going home dead tired and getting drunk is really not helpful. Like it's not really a good thing. Like you can just kind of slack off. Like you're not going to be – like it, it's sort of that idea that you have a moral superiority from doing like a horrible minimum wage job and just busting your ass and just being like, you know, the common working man that doesn't really have any economic benefit anymore. Like it would 
400 years ago, say, when there's sort of the Calvinistic um, idea that the harder you work, the more likely you are to get into heaven. When that was actually, you know, when they were settling America and there was, you know, a ton of agricultural work to be done and like it was the yeoman farmers that were the backbone of the economy. Like that made sense economically to have that, to have that impulse to work. But now it doesn't really accomplish anything other than just giving more money, funneling more money to the the 1% at the expense of the workers. So people need to get out of that idea that, you know, doing your shitty job and, you know, working harder than imaginary welfare queens or whatever makes you a good person. Like you don't, you don't have to do that. You don't deserve that. You don't have to, you shouldn't have to work that hard. You shouldn't have to, to, uh, to break your back trying to make a, a meager living. Some folks have been recently conceptualizing this in terms of like looking at a post-work society. Uh, James Livingston has recently written a fantastic book. I'm looking forward to getting him on the show to talk about it, uh, where he, he's trying to sort of push back against the way the left valorizes work, right? And the way that like, you know, this sort of laborism of the, of the labor movement. Um, and he wants to push back against that and say like, actually, we're moving towards a society where you know we're not going we shouldn't have to work the way that we have in the over the past several hundred years right like life should be uh consumed by less work not more so it seems to me that there's an interesting way that like traditional working class you know culture has sort of morphed into its opposite right like where that that sort of valorization of work that used to be kind of channeled in a progressive way is now sort of its opposite yeah it's it's sort of strange that people people want to work more people want to bring you know the coal jobs back or the factory jobs back or whatever they want to go back to these um they want to go back to old jobs that were just incredibly unpleasant and dangerous but there there is another way you can just give people money we have enough money that we can just provide social programs for people so they don't have to work 60 hours a week mining coal. That's not the only way that you can get to having a living wage for being able to live comfortably. And I think if you if you if you propose that in a in a way that's, you know, more than just, you know, articles or whatever, if you propose that as part of a national program, like we need to work less we want to have you work 30 hours a week instead of 40 hours a week, but still make the same amount of money. If that's proposed on a wide scale and it's, you know, realistic in nature, like I think that's going to be extremely popular with working class people once they, you know, once they think about it. Absolutely. I mean, it beats the hell out of working uh, at a call center or, you know, doing a retail job and competing with, you know, high school kids who are just trying to. Make yeah, Absolutely. Money. It's interesting that um, Barbara Ehrenreich uh, just, you know, wrote an article where she notes that, like, we're in a moment right now where Donald Trump promised to bring back the coal jobs, which, of course, he fucking can't and he won't. But he promised to do that. And Hillary Clinton promised job training. And the people voted for Trump and bringing their jobs back. Right. Because the, the, the other the other end of that. The other promise, the competing promise is, oh, you can take night classes and learn, you know, fucking computers or something, you know, when you're in your 60s and you live in West Virginia and you've been mining your whole life. And that just, yeah, it's not appealing, but that seems to be the progressive message. And then I think they're, they know on some level that there aren't really jobs in that. Like, even if you know web design or whatever, or you can put, um, you know, if an old guy can put, you know, proficient in Microsoft Office on his resume, that's not going to automatically get you a job, especially if you're living in West Virginia or Kentucky or whatever in a small town. There aren't really other jobs that you can be trained to do. Like there aren't really, you know, there are like, you know, a few doctors in town or whatever, but you have to go to school for, for 20 years to do that. And there are fast food jobs, but there aren't really a lot of things in the middle. That you can just, you know, we're going to train you at night classes for six months. There aren't a lot of jobs that you can really get with that. So they they, they kind of understand that that's, uh, that's not really going to go anywhere. But, of course, in the same sense, when they say they're going to bring the coal jobs back, like 
they're not going to give or if they brought all the factories back tomorrow they wouldn't give the jobs to uh 60 year old guys with diabetes who have been out of work for 20 years they would probably do what they did the first time around and give all the jobs to uh 22 year old uh, immigrants that's right that's right it wouldn't seem to help anyway so it sounds to me like we've built a pretty good structural, uh, cultural, political picture of of why the neo Confederate identity is so attractive. Uh, that you know, it, it's it's a, it's it's kind of a form of nihilism, right? Like life is shitty, and you got to work hard, and you never make enough money, and your boss is an asshole. But what are you going to do? Uh, so we're going to drink beer on the weekends and 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 go to stadiums across the country to watch these god awful. Uh, douchebag country stars throw uh, cliches at us about what we think our life is. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's very nihilistic. It's just saying that, um, well, my life is shitty. There's really not a lot I can do about it. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna use these cultural symbols and these uh, sort of uh, these, you know, these television shows and everything to convince myself that I'm actually okay. To just hip- hypnotize myself into into thinking that my, my shitty job is actually really great and that I'm, I'm actually happier than, uh, than the rich people in New York City because I'm, I'm a regular salt-of-the-earth guy. Absolutely. Well, I think that just about covers it, Alex. Thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to reading uh, more, more of your work from, uh, at Current Affairs magazine and uh, come talk to us soon, all right? Yeah, thanks for having me on. All right, take care. <laughs> And that's our show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Once again, thanks to Mr. Alex Nichols of Current Affairs Magazine. If you're not reading Current Affairs for any reason, go repent. Uh, Pay some penance, flog yourself in the back with a whip, whatever you have to do, whatever gets you off, uh, really. Um, Anyway, thanks for tuning in. Next week, we're going to sit down with Adam Gaffney. He's a writer, a doctor, a public health researcher, and a single-payer advocate. We're going to talk to him a little bit about the debacle that is the repeal and replace platform of the Trump administration and the GOP. Uh, One more big thanks to Otis McDonald, who does all of the music for our podcast. Otis brings the funk. Got you wiggling in your chairs, on the bus, in the car, at work, wherever you may be. Until next week, this has been the Dead Pundit Society. Peace. Crazy mother...